All right, thank you, Zach. Well, I hope you were as excited to come to church this morning as I am. I can tell. It's always nice to see you on Sunday mornings, your smiling faces. We're going to start a new series today, and we're going to start it in the book of Romans. That's right. How many of you are intimidated by the book of Romans? Hopefully none of you. Paul wrote 16 chapters. Well, don't be, because by the time we're finished, you won't be intimidated. Paul wrote 16 chapters to this church that nobody knows how it began. We're going to talk about this. Apparently, somehow, it wasn't founded by an apostle, by the way. There's no mention. And here are a group of believers that are now starting a church over in Rome. And guess what happens in that church? They have problems. And Paul, who was not the founder of the church, apparently got word that these believers were struggling with some issues. Paul wanted to go and visit them so that he could help straighten out some of these matters. But every time Paul tried to go, he was hindered. You ever had a plan to go somewhere and all of a sudden it just gets derailed? Well, this is exactly what happened to Paul. And he had told them he wanted to come. He was, they were expecting him. And lo and behold, he never got to show up. So Paul writes this letter to them. And basically, he's just laying out God's plan, God's good news. And it involves something of what Zach said about us being declared righteous before God, having Jesus' righteousness. But it also does something else. It provides power for our life. You don't have to sin, Paul says. You can choose not to do that but by the power of the Spirit. And yes, you'll battle in your flesh, chapter 7, but you can overcome that. And when you don't know how to overcome problems in life, chapter 8, the Spirit intercedes for you and prays. Now, what about God's great plan for Israel? Well, he has a plan for them. Even though they're blinded, God will again turn his program to them. But now, Paul says in chapter 12, let's lay it out here. The, the issue is you are to present your body as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. And that is your spiritual act of service. That is your worship. And then he goes into chapter 13 talking about how you're living in a government society. What are you supposed to do to government? Yes, you're just supposed to submit to them, pay your taxes. You are to get along with other believers, not allow your Christian liberty to cause someone to stumble. You are not to judge your brother and sister in Christ over trivial matters. And then lo and behold, Paul ends the letter by thanking everyone who is involved and mainly a woman whose name was Phoebe. She was the carrier of the letter of Romans. Probably the most detailed portrayal of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. So we're going to be looking at <clears throat> a few sections. I will not do like one pastor. He took five years and preach to the book of Romans. I'm going to do it in six messages, so obviously we're going to be taking it in chunks, not word by word. But today, we're going to go over the first 17 verses, and as you know, this is one of the most famous verses out of Romans. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I'm reading it out of the version that I memorized it from, okay? The point is, life brings problems, and it brings all kinds of obstacles. And those aren't good. Okay, some of those things are not good. But somehow, in God's plan, God works them out for good. 
and we can't see that all the time. You may be going through issues in your life right now that you can't figure out how in the world, why would God ever allow this? Why would God allow this in my life? Don't, don't even try to answer that. Why is a question that you shouldn't even ask because you're never going to get the answer for it this side. But God has a purpose and a plan to work through our life and our problems. I'm in Romans chapter 1. I put it on the screen for you this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll go back, and we're going to learn some lessons about this wonderful introduction. Paul, I'm going to translate here, a slave. A slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Here Paul lays out this magnificent truth. He says, I'm not making this up. This was back in the Old Testament, talking about the suffering servant of Jesus, where he would be born, how he would be born, who would be born to. This is God's continuing message, and Jesus came. All right? And he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now imagine people in Rome hearing this message of a resurrected Jesus. Now notice what he says. Through whom, or Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You think Paul could learn anything from just common, average people? That's what he said. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. If we were translating that today, it would be, I am under obligation to educated people and uneducated people, to PhDs and people who have GEDs or don't even graduate, from the smartest to the lowest. I am under obligation, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
in the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And you should park right there. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is how it's attained, from faith to faith. What does that mean? We'll be talking about it. As it is written, the righteous, let me interpret here, shall continue to live by faith. Faith is not just a one-time thing that we place in a gospel and then forget it. You know, as a Christian, if we just believe the gospel and then don't live by faith, that's going to be a very empty life. It takes faith to trust God through trials and problems, through child rearing. You know, when you are raising children and you're going through life and your children decide to go one way, you're going this way, you know what? Your child finally gets to an age where they turn into a young man or a young woman and listen to me, mom or dad, you can't control them anymore. The only thing you can do, or may I say the greatest thing you can do, is live faithfully and stay on your knees and pray for their heart. And you serve a God who you are trusting by faith, who can intervene in your child's life and bring them wherever he wants them. And don't you ever think that your child gets bigger than God. That is a very bad conception. He's not. God can and God will. He will do his way. So we have to pray for that. So what are some reasons Paul wrote Romans? Okay, I'm just going to fly through some of these, okay? First of all, he did it to prepare his way for a visit. Paul probably wrote this while he was in Corinth, and he knew he was going to be traveling. So turn over to Romans 15 real quick. Do y'all like to study? I know they teach you in preaching class, don't ever do this on Sunday morning to people. Don't ever teach them, you just... Well, sorry, that's just not who I am. So turn to Romans 15. I didn't put this on the screen. Look at the reason why Paul wrote this letter. This is the reason, 1522, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So what did Paul say? If you go back up in 15, which I don't have time to read, he had finished his work in Galatia, Corinth, and that area, and Paul did not like to follow another pastor. He didn't want to follow another pastor. person who had went in and shared the gospel. Paul was what is called a pioneer. That's the one who goes in, starts the work from the ground, trains people to take it over, and leaves. And Paul said, my work's finished. And so now I'm going to be traveling through into Spain, and I'm hoping to stop by, visit you and be encouraged, and hopefully you can help me as I go and plant other churches in another area. And then he prepared this church because it appears in verse 24 he wanted them to be his base of operations. He had to have a missionary hub and he wanted this local church to be his mission agency. This is a side note, by the way, but do you know that the, that mission, that is people who are sent out overseas, is birthed in the church? Please don't think that... that ABWE, BMW, 
Uh, all these other mission agencies are the ones who send missionaries. The church does. The reason we have mission agencies to train missionaries is because they can focus on them more intently. They can stay involved in what's happening on the ground. They are an arm of the local church. They are not the church. And so God still calls people into mission from a church, from a body. And here Paul wanted the involvement of this church in Rome of which he was not the founder. And then he did it to set forth his gospel in case he didn't make it. Now, by the way, a lot of people wonder why Paul wrote this book. And they say, you know, this is the most detailed account of any message that Paul wrote. You know, he wrote 13 books, and I don't think he wrote Hebrews, but if he did, that's 14. But I'm going to say 13. Have you ever thought about how the New Testament is laid out? How it was put in order? You know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel account of the life of Jesus. You have the book of, of Acts, which is the transition from the life of Jesus now into the life of the church. But when you come chronologically, the first book Paul wrote was either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians. Why, did Paul, why is Romans first? And most people believe that when it was organized, it was put that way because it was the most detailed account of the gospel given. And Paul's letters are organized by church, churches, and then the individuals. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then what did he write? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That's, all those books are to churches. And then Paul writes to individuals. Who are they? 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, or Philemon. So, church books, books to individuals, and they are put in order. So that just helps you understand a little bit about how they are. But Paul knew when he went to Jerusalem, he was going to face some serious opposition. Look at his words in verse 31 of chapter 15, since you're there. I'm going to start in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. What did Paul want the Romans to pray for? That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. You ever been thrown to the lions? You know, sometimes we get baptized into the immersion of unbelievers. Not a very fun place to live when you're a believer. And when people are really hostile towards you, it's that much harder to live for the Lord. And Paul knows here that the last time he was in Jerusalem, they were wanting to kill him. As a matter of fact, Paul's whole ministry was running from these unbelievers or these people who were trying to take his life. On one account, they had to lower him down in a, in a bread basket out of a wall because they were trying to chop his head off. You know why they were trying to chop his head off? Because he told them that the only way you can be righteous before God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that a heinous message? I mean, that's worthy of having your head cut off, isn't it? Just think about this. And so here's Paul, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. When he was in Corinth, 
The people in Jerusalem, the poor saints there, needed help. They took up an offering. And Paul was taking that offering back to Jerusalem to give to them to help those who were in great need. And Paul says, pray that I'll be delivered from unbelievers and pray that the saints will find this gift acceptable. Okay, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. I mean, here's this man, perhaps, and he says, you know, if I don't make it to Rome, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lay out the gospel to this church so that if I die by God's will, at least they can read my words. Now, by the way, let's get practical here. You don't know what tomorrow brings in your life. Karen and I were flying to the Middle East one time. Our boys were very small. And we thought to ourselves, you know, what happens if, if this plane crashes and we both die? Our kids were all under 18. Who in the world is going to take care of I mean, listen to me. We had not set our life in order. It's easy when you're 30, 32, 3, to think that you're invincible and you have until you're 90 to live in perfectly good health and nothing will ever happen. But you start thinking, you know, well, something could happen in my 30s, and here's what I want to do. I want to sit down and write what I want to happen to, with our kids and our estate. I need to get my things in order. I think that's perhaps, okay, I'm not being dogmatic here, perhaps Paul sat down under the inspiration of the Spirit, and penned Romans with this in mind for these believers. But if I don't make it, I want you to know that my gospel that God gave to me is the power of God unto salvation, and I'm not ashamed of it. And it can transform your life. And this is what he had a message to this church. And then, of course, he did this to meet the practical needs of the church. If you look in 15, verses 1 through 8, um, we'll get to this, by the way, but the point was, you had some judging going on. There were believers there, and one of them said, can you believe such and such does this? Oh my goodness, they can't be a, a spiritual Christian. And Paul says, watch it now, watch it. You may be free to do something, but if you take your freedom and you force that down a weaker believer's throat and make them stumble, you're doing wrong. Don't do that. And then he says, and whatever you do, don't sit back and judge each other over little petty issues. Because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all believers, and we'll receive what we've done, good or bad. So leave that to God. Don't offend people with your Christian liberty. And don't be forceful in things that don't matter. Instead, accept each other, love each other, and welcome each other. And this was Paul's belief for this church. Look in, I think it's verses 14 and 15, of his, his uh, confidence in these people. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, by the way, that's a healthy church, isn't it? Full of goodness, uh, you have knowledge, and you're able to instruct and help one another. Now, now listen to me for a moment. What this means is, the church didn't just come together, hear a sermon, and say, well, that was good. Now, what did he say? I can't remember that. Anyway, point one, two, three, okay, go ahead. And then walk out the door. No, Paul said, 
that it's, a, it's an active involvement in each other's lives where we're filled with goodness and we instruct one another, we share with one another, we bear one another's burdens, we welcome one another, we challenge one another, we love one another. I mean, there's involvement in this church life. And Paul says this is significant. Okay, so there are some reasons. Now, what are the attitudes Paul had about his gospel message? All right, go back to Romans chapter 1. Turn back there for a moment. I'll be quick, and then we're going to get to a few lessons that are very practical here. Look in verse 11 about the first attitude that we need toward the gospel ministry. First of all, we should expect to be motivated by the encouragement of others. Verse 11 says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now please understand, Paul did not say gifts. He was not expecting to go to these people and lay hands on them and cause them to to do certain things. Paul is saying to them that he wanted to go to them and share his apostolic gift, which was knowledge and truth and so forth, and he lays it out in this letter, by the way. But he didn't just want to go and share something with them. What did he say? I want to be mutually encouraged by you. I mean, the greatest encouragement we get is not when only we receive but when we give, when we serve. That is when you find your fulfillment in Christian life. Please hear me. You find fulfillment in the Christian life when you serve. If you're not doing anything for the Lord, you're probably not fulfilled as a believer. I'm just going to lay it down where it's at. He wants us to be actively involved in serving one another. Our, Our Savior was a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. Mark 10. So the point is, we are to be servants. And when we do that, we encourage one another. There's a second motivation, and that is by a sense of obligation. Paul had had a way of looking at life that was difficult. And by the way, God allowed me to run into somebody this week that was very hard and rude and not very kind. And he always does this whenever pastors, if we're alert, whenever we go to preach something, he always gives us something to show us. I'm going to let you practice what you preach, big boy. Motivated by a sense of obligation. Paul says here, that he is motivated and he is obligated to both the wise and the unwise, to the nice and those that are not so very nice. Let me read this for you because it's very powerful. I am under obligation. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. In other words, he viewed humanity in different ways, but here it was. It didn't matter. He was obligated to all. When we go in and we see people and we see their heart and we see their life, you know, most angry, mean, grouchy people are that way because there's a problem inside of their life. 
and you happen to be the bullseye upon which they can take it out on. Do you know it's hard to be kind to people like that? I'm not going to reveal too much because it might come out who this person was. But nevertheless, I backed away from that conversation and I thought, my goodness. You know, in my unsaved days, see, this is how I know I'm a, I'm a changed person. In my unsaved days, I would have had a couple of extra lines that I would have added in after that conversation. But instead, you know, you ask God to help you be sensitive and, and after this person does what they do and say what they say, then you say to yourself, wow, what an empty heart. And then you say, Father, I don't feel like praying for that person because they were so nasty just now. But they need you worse than anybody else. And I pray, do y'all pray like this? I pray you'd wreck their life. No, 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 hear me now, and get their attention. What, whatever you have to do, Father, do it. Wreck their life so that you can finally get their attention. And when you get it, do your work. Save them. They, they need the gospel. They need new life in Christ, a new heart. And Paul was motivated by that. Are, are, are we motivated to do that? When we go into work and we see grouchy people, we deal with grouchy people, you know. I mean, are we really motivated and say, man, alive, I need to really live my faith in front of this person and pray that they give me a chance to share. I mean, this was Paul's heart. And by the way, Paul was rejected much more than he was accepted. So was Jesus, by the way. Did you know that, believer? You're in good company if you're rejected more than you're accepted. Jesus, at the very end of his life, this is what he could say. Fear not, little flock. Little flock. Small number, by the way. And he actually told the apostles in the upper room that they were going to do greater works than he would do. And in fact, on the day of Pentecost, more people got saved through the preaching of Peter than during the life of Jesus that we know. So don't quit when you're uh, rejected. Be motivated. Paul said, I am op I'm under obligation. I hope we feel that way too. By the way, they will not hear unless and live it. People won't hear it. And by the way, folks, we are living in, Christ in America, which is becoming, if it is not already, catch this, a post-Christian society. Okay, what does that mean? That means that Christianity has run its course in America. It influenced the government and all of these things. But now, society has become secularized and pushed, pushed God's Word out of every area of life. Take your Bible, take your prayer, take your God, get out of our way. And now they are post-Christian. However, that doesn't mean the absence of Christians. You know, just because the government won't let you pray or the school won't let you pray doesn't mean you can't pray. I mean, don't tell me I can't pray in a school. I'll go right in the school and pray. Nobody will be able to say a word. I'll sit down and look at you. Father, I pray for this person that won't let me pray. <laughs> and even though they're not going to let me pray, I'm praying right now. And they don't know that I'm praying, but you do. And that's all that matters. Change their heart. 
Are you praying? What do you think? And then Paul was motivated by confidence. Confidence in the power of God to deliver. In 16 and 17 he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Now, you and I sometimes can be ashamed. Did you know that? Now, let me tell you something. Right here, right here's a guy. Somebody came to me the other day and asked me, what do you do for a living? Okay, now let me tell you something. This is a loaded question. I never share this with church people, but I'm going to let you in. The moment that I tell someone I am a pastor, they view me and treat me ten times differently. They are not their self because they've had some kind of an experience or they have some kind of perception of what they think a pastor is. You know, where's your collar turned around backward? What, what, where's your rosary beads? I mean, I've had all kinds of people ask me questions. I don't have a collar backward. I don't have rosary beads. But this is what people think, by the way. So he asked me, he said, what, what do you do? I said, I'm a teacher. He said, oh, what grade do you teach? I said, no, I teach something else. He said, oh, okay. I started thinking about that after. Yeah, I do teach the Bible, by the way. That's not a lie. But I didn't come out and say, well, I'm a pastor. Because I knew the moment I told this guy, he would scoff me in the dirt. He had already let out a line about you know, that long when I met him. And I had to see him. And after I was finished, you know, I left, that guy left, and I'm going to tell you something, arrow from heaven, came all the way down, and this is what was whispered to me, you ready? Chicken. (laughs) You big chicken. You were afraid to tell him what you did, because you were ashamed. And you know what I said? You're right, Lord. You're right. We all have our days, by the way. You ever been there? We all have our days. I'm no better than you. I'm right there with you. And so here's what I said. Help me do better next time. And when I meet that person the next time, help me to be, help me to be right up front and say, here's exactly what I do. And I got a message for you, by the way. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the, it is the power of God for deliverance, for salvation. And notice what he says, to everyone who believes. It is unlimited. All the person has to do is believe. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And geographically, it went to the Jew first, and then it moved out to the Greek, and it finally got its way to Rome. And now you have this wonderful message, and Paul says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed the righteousness of God. I I have a whole message on that because this is the key text of the whole book. Paul talks about three key issues in Romans. He talks about life, he talks about righteousness, and he talks about faith. These three themes are developed through this book and they all impact each other. And so we'll unpack that as we go but it is revealed from faith to faith, from first to last. And therefore, the righteous person who's believed the gospel should live by faith the rest of our life. 
Okay, so what are some lessons we learn from this book? Lesson number one, the ministry, the gospel ministry, is to be shared among each other. Hear me, folks. Church life is not to be done alone. It's not to be done alone. We have to have each other. That's why we're called a family. If, if you're a Christian and you don't have a church family that you're involved in and you have people who know you and can pray for you and share your burdens in life, that's lonely. That's not the way you were meant. You know, someone called me recently and said, I'm so lonely, I'm, I, I just, I'm so down, I'm so depressed. And my question to them was, have you reached to your family? No. Why? I don't know. I said, listen to me for a minute. Do you not understand this is what family is for? Family is to be loyal to each other. That means in the good times and the bad. And we are to reach out to each other. Do you have family? Yes. You need to reach out to them. Do you have a church family? Yes. Have you t told anybody? No. Why? Because I'm too embarrassed. How, what would people think of me if I told them that I was depressed? And this is what I told him. Come up here real close. Over half the people in your church are probably depressed. Nobody wants to talk about it. Half the people. You know, that's what statistics show, that a majority of people struggle with issues like that, depression, anxiety. I mean, we, we have that in the church, but you know, I mean, heaven forbid you think that I am depressed or have anxiety. You might find out that I'm a human. I, I'm being a little funny, but you know, we all have this. Have there been times in my life I've been depressed? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Have there been times in my life that I've had anxiety? Absolutely. Do you know if you go too long with either depression or anxiety, it can turn into something else? But one of the greatest ways of overcoming that, are you listening? One of the greatest ways of healing, any counselor will tell you this. You know what it is? You ready? Because you're made in God's image. Sharing it. As a matter of fact, you will not find healing until you are willing to face the fact of what you're going through and you share that. Church life is meant to be a partnership one with another. We are to receive one another. We are to welcome one another. We are to be involved in one another. And this is exactly what Paul wanted. He wanted these believers in Rome to strengthen, encourage, partner with him and build each other up. Instruct, share. Second lesson, God's presence. His presence is everywhere, even place and heart. Way we're going to be able to see in Romans chapter, Paul talks about the most debased person that there is. He says, Turn on your mic. Paul says that the most debased person that there is still has conscience. And this person, down in their heart, knows right from wrong. They know what they're doing and they know right from wrong. And therefore, as a result of that, God's presence is everywhere. 
I read something this week, and I wish I had put it in my notes about uh, the Roman life. And I'll read that to you next week. But anyway, this civilization was void of God. They had pushed God all the way off the scene. And Paul says, I've got news. God has got, He's not gone anywhere. He's right there in Rome, and you're changing the world. Thank you, sir. So, God's presence is everywhere. And we need to remember that too, by the way. <clears throat> because sometimes we go <clears throat> throughout life, <clears throat> and we think, God's not with me. By the way, that's a, <clears throat> that's a misunderstanding of God. Please hear me from. Let me help you with some theology. God is everywhere at all times. Sometimes his presence is stronger in an area, but God is everywhere, even in hell. You cannot escape God because he is God. And as a believer, that should bring the greatest comfort to our life. You know, Daniel, when he was in the lion's den, he didn't fear. You know why? Because God was with him. And God shut the mouth of the lion. And God's presence is everywhere. The, the third lesson we learn is the gospel has power. It has power. So, partnership, presence, and power. I read a story this week. And it was one of the most fascinating stories about a man I'd never heard of. His name was Joseph Owiski. He, after Pearl Harbor, much like 9-11, he wanted to be involved in the military. So the story is told in a book <clears throat> entitled A Turtle on a Fence Post that this man had went into a barrack and he was stationed beside another guy whose last name was Emery. Emery was a believer and a Christian. But this other man, Joseph, was not. And as Joseph walks in, Emery was stationed on guard one night, and he saw Joseph come walking in all spiffed up. He had these cuff links out, and his shoes were polished. And he had just met his bunkmate, and he said, How do I look? He said, Man, you look sharp. And he said, Good. He said, Well, I met a girl last night, a rich girl. He said, and she invited me over to the week for the weekend. I don't have to be back till 7 a.m. Monday. She said she had all kinds of music and all kinds of alcohol, and we were going to have the time of our life. And Joseph said to him, he said, I will be praying for you. I'm going to read to you what he said. He said, I'll be praying for you. Joseph turned around and said, what would you say? He said, I said, I'll be praying for you. Why would you be praying for me when I'm going to go have the greatest weekend in my life? I've never had this much fun. Listen to what he said. Because, Joe, Monday morning, you'll be back aboard ship and you will not be the same person you are tonight. Sin leaves its mark. Joe swore at Emory and went out into the night. And Emery prayed for Joe as he prepared for guard duty. And as he was startled, when an unsmiling and agitated Joe suddenly reappeared at the guard post, floodlights, and said, how can you have a good time when somebody's praying for you? <laughs> and he said, you've ruined my weekend, Christian. I stood up my date. I've been waiting until you came on duty. 
And now you better tell me, how do I find this God? That night, Joseph Olszewski heard for the first time in his life the promises of God, and he believed on Jesus for eternal life. The change was immediate. He joined Park Street Church, spent his free time on the common, inviting other servicemen to services, prayed with his buddies at St. Paul's Cathedral, which was always open, grew in his knowledge of Scripture under Dr. Harold Ockengay, which I read books from. And then on February the 1st, 1943, he volunteered for sea duty on a minesweeper headed for Iceland. And just a few days out of the New York Harbor, a torpedo hit his ship and took his life. You never know. But he's in heaven. The power of the gospel. Let me tell you something, folks. You never know what your words will do in somebody's life. You know, it's not the greatness of your words, it's the greatness of your God. And can you imagine telling somebody, well, I'll be praying for you. By the way, that's my wife's famous line for our kids too, by the way. I'll be praying for you. Strike fear in their hearts. I'll be praying for you. The power of God. I remember going to a camp meeting one time, this old fiery preacher. He was about that big around, about that tall. And he did nothing but scream the whole time. He told a story. Because that's all he did was tell stories. But the story was that there was an old drunk driving out a road one night and he was getting ready to end his life. He was so depressed, so down. And he had drunk himself full. And the road was kind of narrow and he was going around this big curve. And he said as he was getting ready to go around the curve to go shoot off that cliff, his, high, his lights went on high beam and he said they struck a rock. And somebody had climbed up on that rock and painted... Jesus saves. And as he began to start to hit the gas, he let off and hit the brake and said, What? What? Why would, why would he let me see this? He pulls off to the side of the road, sobers up the next day, goes down and talks to a friend and comes to Christ. Two words painted on a rock. Jesus saves. The power of the gospel what happened in your life? I could tell you about mine. What happened in yours? The power of God unto salvation. And then God, and never forget this folks, God is working out His purpose to bring His plan to fulfillment. We're going to see this in chapters 9, 10, and 11 in one message. You say, what in the world is going on today? God knows exactly what's going on. And he knows exactly why he's allowing everything to happen and maybe he's even giving it a push. Because he is waiting on the return of his son when time is ready. And he will. Until then, his people are to walk by faith, trusting him and his ways and his plan in our life. And when things happen, we are to remember that all things will eventually work out for good to those who know God, who love God, and are called according to his purpose. He has a plan and a purpose for our life. Now I have to ask you a piercing question this morning. What is the gospel? Paul said it's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. You know, 
2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that something happened on the cross and it was the great exchange. The righteous Jesus took the unrighteous person's sin and he changed them. He, he, he changed them. And so all of our unrighteousness he put on Christ and the righteousness which with Christ had, he offers to the believer. So that when we, as sinners, understand what our Savior did on the cross, when he paid our penalty, listen to me folks, not only does he forgive us of our sin, that's wonderful, but I'm going to sin again, did you know that? Yeah, he, but he forgave you of all of them, good. But that's not enough to get you into heaven. Do you realize to get into heaven that you have to be as righteous as God himself? And I've got news for you. You can't do that on your own. Somebody has to give you that righteousness. Theologians call this alien righteousness. In other words, it comes from another planet. And the planet it comes from is third heaven, by the way. It's God's free gift to you to accept by faith when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. God gives you an outside righteousness which is not yours, but becomes yours. And not only are you forgiven of your sin, you are given a righteousness which you couldn't earn. And when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as righteous as Jesus. You know what Paul says? Paul says that comes by faith and then as a result of that, after you receive his righteousness, you are to live a life of faith. You don't live a life of faith to earn that righteousness. That's given to you the moment you believe, but you live that because you believed it. Changes us in a moment, in an instant. And I'll tell you the most liberating thing is to be able to say, I am as righteous as Jesus because he gave me his righteousness. I hope you can say that this morning. And if you can't, the offer is to you. Paul said it's open to anyone who believes. I can remember a time in my life when I would walk into a church. I was a teenager in my late teens. I'd sit as far back in the corner as I could get because I wanted to be far back. And as I listened to that message, boy, I mean, it started pounding on my heart. I'm a sinner. God is righteous. Jesus died and paid for my sin, and I would fight that. I mean, I would sit there and feel that gnaw in my heart, and I fought that. They would give a public invitation, you know, play the piano, and spend 15 minutes trying to get people to come forward, walking an aisle, I, didn't, I never did walk an aisle. Never did. But I heard that message and knew it. And in my life, I knew what I needed to do. I, did, I never did do it in church. I would sit there. I was hard, folks. I was a hard young man. I would sit there and hum songs in my mind to try to distract myself from the gospel. I know you don't believe me. I told you before, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't listen to me. And if I knew who you were, I wouldn't preach to you. But I would hum trying to distract that mess. One night, 
I was laying in bed and I realized my need for the gospel. And out on my knees as a teenage boy, and I began to beg God to forgive me of my sin and I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I didn't even know this then. But when I did, He gave me a righteousness that would take me all the way to heaven. Standing before Him righteous. And Paul says in 5.17, that's a free gift. You can't earn it. All you can do is by faith trust it. I hope you've done that this morning. If you haven't, with your head bowed and your eyes closed right now where you are, say this, Lord Jesus, I believe on you as my Savior. I trust you and your death on the cross as the payment for my sin and I receive eternal life, the free gift and your righteousness for me today. Save me. Make me righteous. Declare me righteous. In Jesus' name. I hope you've done that. If you did, share with me and Brian. Let us help you as a new believer. But I'm excited. So here's what you need to do. Start reading the book of Romans. Next week, I'm going to preach through chapter 1, 2, all the way into 320, okay? So there's your homework this week. Uh, as you begin to read Romans, you turn on the news, you'll see that the Bible's right up to date, okay? All right, see you next Sunday. Or tonight, you need to come tonight.